This is The School Bell, brought to you by Independent Schools Queensland, the peak body promoting, supporting and developing Queensland's independent schools. It was important for me to find a school that was suitable for both my kids. Parents are very savvy about school choice, that independent schools are providing what parents want. Highly accomplished and lead teachers are doing amazing things every day in the classrooms. My commitment is to be as bold as possible. Our role in K-12 education is just to set people up for the journey of life, not the journey of university. Hello, I'm Shari Armistead, Director Strategic Relations at Independent Schools Queensland. Welcome to The School Bell. In this episode, I'm speaking with learning strategist and education futurist, Luca Parry. Luca is the CEO and founder of The Learning Future and has worked with thousands of leaders and educators from diverse contexts around the world. As an education leader, he was promoted to principal at only 27 years old. A rapid learner, Luca speaks five languages and holds two master's degrees, one in instructional leadership and another in applied linguistics, and has completed executive studies at Harvard and a residency at Stanford University. Welcome, Luca. Sure, it's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. Wow, five languages. Which ones? Uh, Spanish, modern Greek, two Western desert languages, Pijin Jara, Yankun Jara, and uh, a bit of French, actually. Fantastic. The learning journey for all of us, you know, as an educator, there's always more to learn. The best and worst thing about working in the field of learning Absolutely. <laughs> it's never over. Well, lifelong <laughs> learning, as we often say in education, that's true, isn't it? Indeed it is. And it really is, I think, the emerging reality for the future of work, really the future of education systems as well, is this idea of lifelong meeting life-wide and also life-deep learning. So, you know, how do we consider the entire arc of our life as a learning journey? Because that is what it will need to be from an economic standpoint, but also largely from an experiential standpoint of what what is a good life. It's one where we consistently evolve and deepen and grow. Um, It's why I'm so excited to work alongside educators and leaders, uh, because effectively that's what we're all doing, is we must model learning ourselves, I think be successful in the work that we do. That's fantastic. I agree. Um, As an education futurist, what does the future hold for our schools and especially in the context of living in a pandemic world? (laughs) Well, it's a great question. And I know that many uh, that would listen to this podcast have been dealing with this question daily. What the future holds is unknown, of course. So, but what we can say is that it's not certain, but in a world where there's you know, be it a VUCA world, like the acronym that is sometimes used, a volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous uh, environment in which we function. Well, rapid adaption, ongoing innovation, I think these will are the new normal. And the other thing about the post-COVID world, which of course for, for us in here in Australia, uh, we've had, you know, quite diverse um, experiences or distinct experiences, I, I ought to say, particularly for our colleagues in Victoria, that really has you know, gone through so many lockdowns. I think the big opportunity is what should we remember about human development? And I really think it's about the relational aspect, you know, the, the pleasure that comes from being in a human environment and from looking at the social and the emotional dimensions of what it means to be human alongside the very important academic or the cognitive um, 
ACs that we have as well in the way that we design schools and the environments and experiences that not just the learners have, but that we have as adults and as educators, as leaders, as parents, as community members as well. So what needs to happen that to change for that change to occur in schools? It's a, that's a great question. And the way the change happens is, is another question which sits alongside that. The first thing I, I really do think is to go back to first principles and to say, what is our school for? And there are many beautiful vision statements, I have to say, in, in many of the schools I'm very privileged to work alongside. And of course, sometimes they just don't reflect the reality. And that's not anyone's fault necessarily, but we've inherited a particular paradigm. Uh, and I won't spend any time on this really, but, you know, industrial revolution, segmentation, you know, mechanization, like we are, we're in the fourth industrial revolution now. So those previous paradigms of thought no longer serve us. So when people say education is broken, I mean, as an educator, I always slightly offended by that statement. It's like, well, go and teach in the school and then let us know. You know, everyone is working incredibly hard. The challenge we have is that we haven't yet moved from the grammar of schooling to the language of learning, uh, which a great colleague of mine, Santiago Gallardo Rincon, would talk about. You know, we have to move away from our obsession on academics, largely. Not because they're not important, clearly they are. I mean, converging exponential technologies are being created and entwined by very smart people. But in some ways, what we need is wisdom and presence alongside that knowledge if we are gonna confront some of the really significant challenges that we face at both the community, the national and the international planetary level. So I really think it comes back to purpose. You know, who do we want to be as a school? Who do I want to be as, you know, a headmaster, as a school leader, uh, as a board chair? What's the role that I want to play in crafting this really unique environment for and with this community that we serve so that everyone can do their best work every day? And everyone can experience the most profound growth possible every day as well. well given, so I really think that is the promise of education. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, given the increasing pressure on schools from the community and government, parents, everyone <laughs> about not just so doing yeah, so much pressure, not just the education function, as you say, the academic function, but also to meet the students' social, emotional, and well-being needs. So how can they do all of that? What does a school of the future look like, which can make all of that come true for uh, students mm. of the future? It's a great question. And in some ways, I think the answer is the same with any, any evolution, any development, frankly, be it, uh, yeah, be it consciousness development, um, be it leadership development, uh, or similarly, be it the of evolution itself. The idea that we need to move beyond the false dichotomies. Are we doing academics or are we doing well-being? They are two sides of the same coin. I think they're two strands of the double helix, you know? Uh, so people who are well and have a positive affect learn better. So we know this and we actually know that the schools that, that pay attention to those other dimensions alongside academics, the academics also increase. Uh, and if we were to ask parents or ourselves, you know, what is it that we want for our young people, be they our students or our children, or, you know, our nephews or nieces, it's, it's not just to get a good grade. You know, that has become a proxy for success. And so if we could change one thing, it has to be about what success means for us as a school. And well, I know, and as you do you, there are many, you know, it's quite a courageous conversation to have that. 
because everyone is an expert on education, particularly in Australia, because everyone has experienced some level of it. And of course, we welcome the passion. And I'm sure many education leaders and educator colleagues would say, sometimes it just makes the job even harder. And be that kind of policies or be it the focus on ATAR or NAPLAN or a range of these other high stakes standardized assessments um, is not what a full education needs to be into the future. I mean, I really think, this is the last thing I'd say on this, I think, Shari. There's this idea that, like, is it knowledge or is it skills? And I, I think that's missing the point because, again, it's a false dichotomy. But um, as Tony Wagner would say, and he was an entrepreneur in residence at Harvard for a time, it's not what you know, it's what you do with what you know. And I agree with that statement, but I think it's missing something pretty foundational, which is it's not what you know, it's not what you do with what you know, it's who you are. And this idea around your character, your disposition, you know, your ethical bases, your values, you know, whatever spiritual tradition you may hold. And really that, I think, is what schools can be. We move away from the idea of an institution school that's really kind of segmented with bells and whistles and it's all kind of industrial, and we move into this organic metaphor of a garden in which we have these particular, quite rigorous still, this is not like I said, but rigorous functions and features in which everyone can develop and thrive in their own way, just as nature does that, and we are, of course, part of nature. So I think that's that piece around who we are and how we feel is, is, is the most important part, particularly with COVID. I mean, the singular question we should be asking each other is how socially connected do you feel right now? Because we're in a loneliness epidemic. So what is the point, frankly, Shari, if we have, you know, everyone's done incredibly well on their year 12 exams and that's, we should celebrate that. And everyone is also, it feels socially isolated and is experiencing anxiety or depression and, World Health Organization, which everyone knows about now, of course, like really does predict that depression is, is going to be the greatest burden, greatest financial burden um, in terms of health by 2025. Um, and it's likely that COVID has accelerated that anyway, particularly for, for harsh lockdown. So that's a very long answer to your very good question. <laughs> so um, but I don't, I don't think it's one or the other. I think this is really about us evolving our view and there's great examples of curricula around the world that have social and emotional practices built into them. Mathematics, for example, in Ontario and Canada, where now you're doing the social and the emotional development alongside your academic development. It really is a both and here. Which is what I was going to ask you, actually. You're very intuitive. <laughs> How do we do that in Australia, as you say, and where do we look? So you've just mentioned Canada. There's, yeah, there's a couple of pieces to this, I think. Uh, because there always is, you know, education is so simple and so complex all the time. Uh, and one of the great, one of my mentors, Larry Rosenstock, who was the foundation principal at High Tech High, uh, once spoke immediately after our director general, who was talking about an, a review of curriculum. And he said, I often ask, what would we do if there were no curriculum? And I think that's just a, a really great question to ask. I mean, the great thing about Australia is that conceptually our curriculum is pretty good in terms of general capabilities and cross-curriculum priorities. And then, of course, we have the different subjects as well, um, from foundational reception to year 10. Uh, and then, of course, we have the different uh, secondary certificates of education. And so, But, of course, the lived experience for learners in schools is just so vast. The OECD talks about this all the time. Like we have a very inequitable system. And, and then, again, you know, Professor John Hattie, um, laureate professor, would say, you know, even the variation within a school is often greater than the variation between schools. And so there's, there's a lot of 
a lot of ways that we can just do things differently because I don't know anyone successfully saying, oh, hardworking educators, you can do more. It's not the right approach. Although sometimes I know as an educator myself uh, that it feels like that. Oh, here's another thing to teach. Here's another program. Oh, this is a problem in society. Now you're responsible for it. We really need to move beyond the separation that exists between you know, the care function of schools, which is we send the kids off to school, send young people to school, and then they come back and hopefully they've done something. So this idea of a collective responsibility for the development of our young people, you know, the most important human asset we have in society to help drive us forward and drive us towards a, a kinder world. Many of our um, schools, we often talk about educating the whole child and, uh, of course, that involves all of these things that you're talking about. But, yes, it is that whole um, problem where over the years and forever we are talking about the crowded curriculum, it seems, but, uh, and exactly yeah. as you say, all these extra things. But what you're advocating is instead of doing that as an extra or seeing it as an extra, it's actually building it into your normal daily lessons that are part of the curriculum. So it's a part of it intertwined. I, absolutely. I mean, I really think the brilliance in some ways in education is the pedagogy. And I think we spend so much time talking about what we should teach and having these kind of curriculum wars sometimes uh, about what history should be taught and how. And I mean, they're important conversations, but it just doesn't leave any time to think about, well, how should we teach it? <laughs> how do we do that powerfully? How do we move from being a, a transactor of knowledge, which is the traditional view of a teacher, to the idea of a learning guide or a learning coach, or even better in the language I like is a learning architect. And so what I do as an educator today, and I think this will be more the case into the future, is I design an experience. I step in as a designer. I also visit the future often because that's where the young people I am serving and supporting are going, where I'm going as well. And then I come back to the present and I design an experience in which young people come to these realizations themselves shifting away from just the kind of transactional view to the idea of being a designer of learning. And at a leadership level, and I'll speak to this, it's, it's the idea, how do we move away from, again, being the kind of the headmaster or the headmistress or the chair of the board to being the chief cultural architect or the chief strategist, you know, and, and play that role. Uh, because, of course, that's where that sets the tone, sets the scene for everything else that takes place. And to be able to do that together, because frankly, to take bold decisions in education is very difficult. We have decades of examples of that being the case. And, you know, really great innovations that came and then went, um, others that weren't great to begin with. Um, and all of us are just doing the best we can because thankfully in education, the moral purpose is so clear in the work that takes place. So I don't think... Yeah, go ahead. I don't think I don't think it's just, it's not a dichotomy. It just has to be embedded, and there's very practical ways to do that today and tomorrow, as we also try to steer the ship in a slightly new direction, one that is is more of the lived experience of the vision that you've just talked about, the holistic. Like, how do we say it and then do it in everything, and then really stand, you know, stand in place on our belief system, because this is what our school is, this is what to be successful is, this is our graduate profile, that we are trying to support the development of all of our young people to reach, because we want to set them up to be successful, and also to be really kind uh, and empathetic human beings in the future world. 
That's what I was going to go with is that uh, practicality side of things is what that practical advice can you give to the leaders listening? I don't think any of us, myself included, are going to have a problem with being too bold <laughs> or too innovative. I think it's the opposite. I mean, we really are in the most rapid moment of transformation uh, that we've ever witnessed. And we don't even realize it because we're in the middle of it. Uh, and this is the fourth industrial revolution. It's the conversion technology. It's the fact that we get a new phone every 12 months and it's twice as fast as the previous model. So my, my commitment, not advice, because I try not to give advice because it's, you know, it's actually how I be an example is to be as bold as possible, to really understand the urgency that we have to do what we know, uh, is required. And sometimes that means it means making strategic decisions about when to stand up and when to not. Uh, because ultimately this question is like, what is a system? The system is a collection, a human system in our case, is a, is a collection of human beings doing particular work based on often an invisible grammar or a code or a policy. Um, so how can we be as bold as possible? And I think it can start with very small practical things like bringing in mindfulness practices or social emotional learning kernels of practice. All these are evidence-based and, you know, we know it have a positive impact. It's focusing more on the well-being or the social and the emotional dimensions of learning alongside the academics. Uh, and it's also realizing that our role in K-12 education is just to set people up for the journey of life, not the journey of university. Uh, and that could be hard, particularly for fee-paying parents to hold. But ultimately, if you, if you hold the space long enough, they will admit you know, they want their child to live a good life not just to get a good job because that is just part of living a virtuous and a flourishing life. And I really think that it's a real privilege and there's also a weight that we bear in education to try to set up the right systems and structures that really do respond to the challenges of today and just do the best we can. And if I would give some advice, it's the following, it's advice I give to myself and it, it's to forgive yourself every night and then to recommit every morning. It's a wonderful piece of advice because the job is never done. <laughs> There's always more. The lesson's never the best lesson. The comms piece that went out, this podcast I'm sure could be much better if I had spoken more clearly, <laughs> Sorry, whatever the case is. So at the end, you just forgive yourself and then you move forward and you do the best that you can and you show up. No, um, no, you're doing great. You're all good. I'm just wondering about this. Be bold. That's fantastic. And basically break the grammar or break the code and do um, some bold and innovative things. I mean, when you're talking about the health and well-being and emotional well-being of the students, what about the emotional well-being of the staff? I mean, it's critical. I mean, can anyone really teach, you know, teach the social and the emotional capabilities without really demonstrating them themselves. The answer, of course, is not is no, that can't be true. So, I mean, when we talk about well-being, I think one of the problems is we only talk about student well-being. So what we mean is learner well-being for all learners, and that includes the adults and the parents and the community members and, you know, the, the linked organizations or paraprofessionals as well. You know, how do we build a well-being ecosystem, a learning and well-being ecosystem, as opposed to here's a traditional school? I really think that is that is the shift that we're seeing and we're seeing some real lighthouses of practice. We're seeing great pockets in schools in Australia, in Queensland. And so the great challenge is, well, what journey do all of us have to go on so that we can create these environments where, you know, we're still going to be busy and dynamic and vivid, which is great. 
that they shouldn't be at the place where we ever reach despair or we, we reach burnout. And the data is clear on this. We just need to talk to a teacher today or to a principal even. And everyone feels like they're just holding it together until you get to the holidays, which we all know aren't holidays. It's a break in learning. So I, I certainly think this is an enormous challenge for us. And it's a, it's a societal challenge. It's part of this is also the status that teachers do not yet have in Australian society. Uh, and I tell you what, there is nothing more noble, in fact, nothing more powerful than shifting the trajectory of young people year on year and making that your contribution. So I just want to honour everyone that's doing that work and we do need to do better around well-being and we're all in this together. Not blaming one part or the other. It's how do we take collective responsibility for this? And again, there's lots of practices to unpack there. You know, restorative justice, again, the social and the emotional dimensions, mindfulness, gratitude, you know, but really thinking about if we treat each other as human beings, that's a pretty good starting point. I think, like you've said, what I've taken from what you've said of all of this podcast is that we're all in it together is really important that we often talk about the partnership between parents and schools, which is important, but it's that whole school community and the old yeah. um, saying of it takes a village to uh, raise yeah. a child. Well, that has never been more important in our COVID world. Exactly right. Yeah, I mean, it's just so obvious that we are all in this together particularly during a global pandemic. Uh, and so how, how, do we, how do we really realise our collective responsibility and move a little bit away? Because I'm, I'm very much a fan of psychology, as you can imagine. And yes, to in, like having a sense of self and being an individual and self-actualising. But actually beyond that is the self-transcendence, which is actually this isn't about me, it's about us. How do we go from me to we? And if we can do that in our schools, we can also do that in our society and we can do that in our world. And I really authentically believe it's the only way that we will be able to create the world that's possible is to move beyond our own interests into the collective interests and realise that they're not actually different. Well, there's a lot on individualised learning at the moment as well. And how does that fit with all of what you're saying? Well, well in my view, a great school is a single organization, a single dynamic organization, and it has as many individual learner journeys in it as there are human beings in the school. So, you know, personalized learning is absolutely critical and the idea of differentiating is a very difficult thing to do well, um, as we know in education. But I, I think often with technology, this is where we're seeing this shift. How do we enable educators and their learners to do the highest order thinking as often as possible. And we're not yet there because we haven't yet distinguished when is it required and when is it not. And, and so I think, yeah, I'm all for the personalized learning. Actually, more better than personalized, personal learning. So the idea of really discovering your passion and not having the 35 or so percent of secondary students choosing subjects that they think will give them a better score as opposed to the ones they truly love. I feel like that's a waste of human potential. That's my view, clearly. But there's something around the way that we can design this in a more powerful way where we realize year 12 is not the final point. It's a, it's a, a stop on the way, and it's exciting, and it's wonderful. Um, so I, I, that's, that's what I would say about the personalized learning. But in the end, my question, sorry, to you would be, well, what, 
what is a life for? What is a community for? And it's about connection and service uh, and about the whole range of emotions and experiences. And I think in schools, like broadly speaking in Australia, we're, we're doing a, a good job, but we know there's a lot of opportunities as well to realize that, you know, the sound of one hand clapping isn't very loud. And if we can do things together and create new innovations, new organizations, new companies, new products, new services, new initiatives that help us all to, to evolve our society, then I think we're getting closer to the true potential of human development through education. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you, Luca. I think uh, a lot of uh, obviously evidence-based crystal balling going on there. So thank you for that. I love uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love where you're coming from and obviously uh, a lot of research because behind all of this and uh, also from working with so many schools, and you work with a few schools in Queensland, do you? I have in the past. It's not... Um, I'm a South Australian, actually. I've lived in Melbourne. COVID actually brought me home from a range of global projects to Australia to notice how wonderful this country truly is. So uh, it's, it's, it's true. You know, the evidence piece matters and the opposite of evidence is innovation because where does the evidence come from? It comes from trying something new. And I think we're seeing an explosion of that happen in so many industries right now, driven by COVID, but also driven by tech. And so the question that I ask myself and all of, all of us in education is like, what is that for us? And I, I think the challenge will always be that we're going to undershoot. Like what's the moonshot for education uh, is a really great way of thinking about it. Uh, how do we get to the educational moon by the end of this decade, by 2030? What does that look like for your school and for your community and for your young people, your kids? Because uh, it's possible. It's just it's going to take us to do it. Thank you. That's a great challenge to the listeners today and our um, leaders of our schools. Be bold and take the moonshot. I love it. Thank you so much for talking to us on the School Bell today. It's been uh, fantastic. And we also want to thank you for speaking at the ISQ State Forum Celebrating Change. Um, that's fantastic too. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have you here. And we're, and we're all benefiting from you coming back to Australia. So thank you, Luca. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. It's my pleasure. You have been listening to The School Bell, an Independent Schools Queensland podcast. To learn more about Independent Schools Queensland, visit our website, isq.qld.edu.au. To catch our next episode or listen to some previous podcasts, you can subscribe to ISQ's The School Bell on iTunes or Google Play. You can also listen via our website or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>